1: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want
2: to do is create ads that don't suck.
1: Embracing change
0: creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Kylan Lundeen. He's the chief marketing officer at Qualtrics. He's helped Qualtrics client base grow from 3,000 to over 13,508 years while increasing revenue year on year, nearly 50% every year. On the show today, Kyle and I talk about his journey from private equity and distressed properties to marketing. We talk about hobbies like skateboards. <laughs> And we talk about much, much more around marketing and how his organization has built their marketing group, as well as where they're going with content creation and entertaining, as well as educating their customer base and future customers. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kylan Lundin. Kylan,
1: welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's it's nice to have you on. Um, I know the last time we were talking, we were looking at each other. We're not looking at each other right now, for those that are listening. But I saw all these like skateboards and other equipment in the room that you were in. And I was curious, like, what's your favorite hobby or activity?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm on Zoom a lot now. So I get a bunch of people that are asking, like, if I have like a side hustle, of like a skate shop in like on the side of my house or something. But no, actually, so, you know, skateboarding is one of those things where it's, it's this cool combination of things that are functional and things that are beautiful, right? Like I, for some reason, get this like extra dopamine hit anytime I get to put something on my wall. That's not just art for art's sake, even though I do appreciate that. But like, I like, if I could put something on the wall that's functional, like functional art for me is like my jam. So yeah, next thing on the wall here, I've got, let's see, uh, maybe a dozen skateboards, maybe a little more. And uh, you know, there for all kinds of styles of riding. We've got some that are made for like mini ramps and some of are cruisers and longboards. And basically it's me and my kids, we'll just zip around on these things all the time. In fact, I'm in my garage. That's where I'm at. I'm in my garage. And uh you might even be able to hear a little bit of an echo, but it's cool because now the kids will come out and we'll just grab a skateboard off the wall and like if I've got 10 minutes between meetings, we'll just skate around in the garage for a second and I'm actually loving this uh hybrid work situation.
0: Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. I, I mean, I skateboarded when I was much, much younger and I know what you mean. Like it is functional art, how they're decorated, painted, whatever.
1: I, I find that like skateboarding is like maybe humanity's lowest common denominator. It's like anybody you talk to either used to skate, wanted to skate, dated someone that skated. Like it's just like a common thread. Like it's it's connective.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I remember looking at all the uh, skateboards on the walls, wanting to do the same thing, which is what you described. Just take one off and, and take it for a spin.
1: <laughs> so. It's therapeutic. Yeah. Five minutes of just a quick skate in the garage. Like it does wonders.
0: Well, let's talk about your, your, your day job, <laughs> which is chief marketing officer at Qualtrics. Tell me about your journey. Like you went, my understanding, you went from a private equity and distressed properties uh, from a banking side or investment side to to marketing. How the hell did that happen?
1: Yeah, I'm definitely an accidental marketer. Um, and it's actually something I'm really proud of. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll give you the cliff notes on the journey and talk about why I think actually it was a really important journey for me. My circuitous path to marketing actually was really important that it didn't go the traditional marketing route for to be able to do what I do today. Uh, yeah, so look, I spent the first five, actually graduated in construction management. So like who would have ever guessed and I you know, grew up in Phoenix. And so I watched the construction boom happen for 30 years around me. I mean, everybody that was successful that I knew down in Phoenix had done it in construction or development. So I sort of thought, well, that's, that's the journey I should be on, right? Like, you know, I'm just trying to figure things out. You're young. You don't really know. And, and so um, when I graduated, though, I had enough sense to poke around besides just looking at being a developer construction company I kind of thought, what's the downside? Like, wh- wh- how can I learn from other people's mistakes on what not to do? And uh, anyway, one of the companies that I interviewed with was, a, yeah, it was a like a, almost like an Alex Partners, but for large distressed real estate projects. So these are things with like downtown reorganization projects or, you know, multi-hundred million dollar projects where the city's bonded for the parking structure, et cetera. There's municipal groups involved. Anyway, so I, I did that for five years and basically it was a good time to do it in that, you know, 2006 is when I graduated and, and the market turned upside down pretty fast, which means there was lots of opportunities for distressed work. Um, So I did that for five years. And then I went to graduate school. And while I was at graduate school, I ended up taking one marketing class. It was almost like, you know, I thought I was going back into private equity. And so I was like, I was taking all the classes out of like bond arbitrage and like everything I could think of to try to get more versed on that. And um, it turns out I was actually really bad at that anyway. So like, it was was probably a good, good thing. I took this one token marketing class. I kind of was like, Well, I should probably round out my MBA experience, right? I'll take that class. So I took the class and I tell you, it was just like, I found my legs for the first time. It was one of those things where I kind of just did it on the side. In fact, I audited the class because I didn't, it wasn't really part of the core curriculum I was taking, but it was you know, even auditing the class. It's like, I would wake up early and engage in the projects, you know, more intensely. And I would stay up later. And like, it was just, there was something about, and I realized that when I got to sort of mix the analytical brain of like running spreadsheets and building models and then exercising creativity. Maybe it's back to the, that like idea we started with like functional art, right? It's like that combination, I was like, holy smokes, like I just got a huge kick out of this. Like m- the more, most energy I'd ever experienced is, is a professional. And so um, there was something about that, but I, I didn't even recognize it then. I just did really well in the class. Like the output was I just did, I did great in the class. And so anyway, the professor that was teaching the class, um, we kind of became close. In fact, we became really close. And one day he was uh, telling me that he, had, he knew these entrepreneurs. Uh, they were looking for good people, needed to grow, and what I want an introduction. Now, I had already signed up to go to a private equity firm in New York after I graduated. So this was mostly just like a, yeah, sure, you know, why not meet another great entrepreneur? But it turns out he introduced me to Ryan Smith, the founder and CEO of Qualtrics, just over email that night. And Ryan responded instantly and said, hey, I'm in Palo Alto. Do you want to meet for breakfast tomorrow morning? <laughs> so we, it, we had this chance encounter at breakfast and... It was interesting because even though I'd, I'd already deposited my summer signing bonus from this PE shop to go and work in Europe, like it was done, like I, had, I had placed place leased on 55th and Madison, right? But kind of before I knew it was happening, I was shaking Ryan's hand over the breakfast table to join Qualtrics for the summer. The vision that he put together was so compelling and so exciting that you know I kind of would have just chopped anything at that point to go be part of it. You know, it was early in my career, and I I wanted to make a bet. On somebody that was out there that was going to go bet the business and do something important. And that came across very quickly in my conversation with Ryan. So I joined them for the summer and I had this experience where it was unlike anything I'd ever had before. And like anybody that's in tech, I think it's just a different pace than I was used to. And so I just had this phenomenal experience. I was a product manager for the summer. And um, turns out I'm not a great uh, product manager either, but you know. That's one of the reasons I think I really fell in love with marketing is Qualtrics gave me the opportunity to kind of meander through the building, if you will, to kind of just learn about the business end to end, and then finally sort of start to lean in and learn about different departments. And this was over a journey of a couple of years, but ultimately I, I just took on some marketing projects. And over time, basically, you know, before I kind of knew it was happening, I was running half of marketing and I wasn't even on the marketing team. You know, So anytime Ryan would say like, hey, I want to go raise another round of financing. Let's go put together a story and a pitch deck and go do this. Like we would do it together. Um, or, hey, I want to go and, and do something disruptive at Dreamforce. Let's go do it together. Right. And so I was doing this. In fact, I tell you a funny story. One of my proudest accomplishments in, as a marketer is I was banned from ever coming back to Dreamforce, which I take a, a lot of pride in. And it, it, actually, it actually comes down to skateboards of all things. So one of the things like, I hate conferences. I really do. I don't like going traveling to conferences, et cetera. But I know that there's a lot of folks that do, because there's, you know, especially pre pandemic, there was, there's a lot of value in meeting people and connecting and being on site and in person. And I would go to these conferences and there was just like this sea of booths and tchotchkes on every table and all these like, you know, people trying to just desperately grasping for attention. And it's just, I just, I hated it. I hated it. So when Ryan asked me to go and do the um, the Dreamforce thing, again, I, I'd only been to like two conferences They were like real estate conferences from back in my private equity days. So it's like, so I go to this conference and I'm like, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it different than we've ever, anybody's done it. So we booked like the the leftover inventory, you know, like the week before the event actually happens, they have like two spots by the bathroom, right? Kind of a thing. So we, we booked those for almost free, basically, because I think I had a budget of $60,000, which at Dreamforce doesn't like get you in the building, right? So it's like, okay, how are we going to get scrappy and do this? So what we decided to do is we ordered 10,000 penny boards, you know, like the mini skateboards, a penny board. And we did them drenched in red to match the Qualtrics colors. So like, you know, like Beats by Dre style, just drenched in red. What the reason was, because I realized it with this like fundamental human truth, which is if you go out on a business conference, if you come back without a gift for your significant other or your kids, you're, you failed as a parent, right? Like, because they want to know, were you thinking of me while you were gone? Or were you just off having like a business adventure? So there's this like desperate struggle that happens on the way back to the airport. We're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to get something. So then you're like in the airport gift shop or you're hitting circle K on the way home to buy like some, like, it's terrible. It's a real struggle. So I thought instead of finding things that like some business traveler thinks is cool stuff in their backpack, why not help them be parent of the year when they get home? Let's do drenched in red skateboards. So the other reason that was important was skateboards are too big to put in your backpack. So that means if you got one of these skateboards, you had to carry it around or write it the rest of the event. So next thing you know, there's people skateboarding all across the campus on these Qualtrics boards and people are going, are they the platinum diamond sponsor of this event? Like, where no, are these people. <laughs> and like, meanwhile, our booth has like miles long lines in it, et cetera. The next year we went back and did it again. It was a huge success. And we did it with Razor Scooters. We did drenched in red Razor Scooters. Anyway, the third year, they kindly asked us not to come back because <laughs> other sponsors were a little uncomfortable with the attention that was happening. So skateboarding, it turns out, like I said, it's just a human truth. You
0: started feeling out the organization, kind of working around the organization, you ended up accumulating marketing functions or programs underneath you. When did it become a CMO gig?
1: Talk about just like accidental, like accidentally stumbling into this. So what happened is we had a CMO at Qualtrics. It was one of the first executive hires that they made, even though, because I joined the company, there were a hundred folks there. It was very small still, but one of the early executive hires they made was a CMO. And it turns out it was just the CMO I think was actually really good but it was the wrong timing right it was they were kind of running a playbook for a much bigger company and it just wasn't working for what they needed when you know they're barely scratching 30 million dollars of revenue at the time and so they made a change they let this person go and they were running they'd run at this point a 6 month kind of worldwide search for the CMO And, um, it wasn't going well, they weren't making progress. And so Ryan comes to me and at this point we built a lot of trust with each other, right? Like he knew we could count on me any hour, any day I would go all night for 10 days straight if I had to to like, so we built that relationship of trust. And he comes to me on a Friday night, it's like 6 PM in the office. And he's like, Hey, Kylan, um, we've got a board meeting Monday morning and I need you to go tell the board how you're going to turn around marketing. (laughs) And I said, well, Ryan, you know what? I'm, I'm not a marketer, right? And he's like, I, I know, I know. He's like, that's why this is going to work. Like, just go with your gut, go with your instincts on this. And it'll be great. And I was like, Ryan, I, like Monday morning, not even Tuesday. Like, I, you can't even Google what's a good marketing plan. over the weekend. <laughs> like, how am I going to make this up? So he's like, look, he's like, I, I got your back. Come in there, do what you think is right. And we'll just work through it together. So it gave me just a little bit of space to feel like I could be safe to do this. So I, I spend the weekend. And like I said, you can't you can't fake it over a weekend. So I thought, I'm just going to go with what sounds and feels right to me. So I walked in Monday morning, got the board in there. And I had a slide deck with four slides. And one was a title slide. So it was literally a three-slide presentation about how to turn around a marketing. I mean, this was crazy. And so I, I basically stood up in front of him and I said, hey, look, if you're looking for somebody that is going to go design the next billboard or come up with the next Super Bowl ad or that tagline like I'm probably not the guy. But I'm going to do three things. And only three things. And if these are the three right things for now, then like great. And if not, then like I'm not I'm not not the person. So the first slide was I'm going to find good leads for sales. That was it. Like if I can't build a machine where I deliver a a very accountable number of high potential leads to sales, then nothing else matters. No matter how much brand building or all this stuff or analyst relations that goes on, like that is my job. Full stop. The second slide said, then I will efficiently track and pass those leads to sales. So how do I build a machine that actually takes care of the leads that we get and builds kind of this system that it can kind of run when even when I'm not on the hamster wheel anymore, right? Like how do we build a system and it in general? And then the third one, again, potentially third, was then... I'll build assets, programs, and collateral to help sales close deals. And so I finished that last statement and I kind of like, you know, cower in the corner in the fetal position because I'm a little, this feels like a kindergartner just made this presentation. And there was actually, it turns out like a standing ovation from the board because they just actually had never heard that amount of clarity from a marketer before. And sure, it did not encompass all the responsibilities and things that a marketer would need to do to go build a successful marketing engine but it covered the most important pieces for anybody starting. And so basically that's what happened. I, I ended up sort of hijacking the entire team. I don't care if your title was analyst relations or investor relations or whatever. Your new job was demand gen because so many times you know, people would get confused. they think their job if they're going to an event. And this is, very, this is very typical for marketing because what happens is companies will often start. You know, they'll start in a the basement, they'll be startup, they'll be early, and eventually, inevitably, They're like, hey, instead of just like cold calling all these people, what if we went to that one conference where they all seem to congregate and we could talk to a bunch of them at the same time? Like, that's a great idea. Well, we need a booth. Oh, okay. We need a booth. Well, shoot. Um, Well, my cousin is a designer. So why don't we hire my cousin to come design the booth? And then marketing's born out of this like booth creation need, right? And so the, the instincts start a little bit off kilter where it's like, The reason that we go to a conference is not to get a good NPS score on how much people liked our swag. (laughs) There's only one reason, and that is to get new leads for sales. That's it. And so like, we just kind of repositioned and we kind of rebranded. I took a a, a play out of um, of Zuckerberg's and Facebook strategy of like, it's the growth team. They they built this growth team that was focused on growth. And so we kind of said, let's do the same thing. Let's not be the marketing team. Let's be the growth team. And um, that drove the success for the next, let's call it three years of having everybody hyper-focused on opportunity creation.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And frankly, like, I, I'm wondering, as you reflect on this journey, like, how much did your distressed like private equity, distressed property, private equity background come into play? Because it sounds like you're basically figuring out the levers of how you're going to grow this business, essentially.
1: Yeah, they actually, it actually played a big role. In fact, the, re- the way I got started at Qualtrics, I skipped over this part, I was hired by the technical co-founder, Jared Smith, so Ryan's brother, these two brothers that were like this ultimate yin-yang for the business. I was hired by him to go run something called RevForce. And RevForce was something he had borrowed from Google where basically it was how you metric and optimize the business and understand what the business growth levers are so that if there's ever a point in your early sort of growth story that there's a blip that you know exactly the mechanisms and the levers to pull to keep growing. Because again, you know, the idea here is that all businesses grow, plateau, and then they eventually die. And you hope to spend a lot of time in the growth phase. And, and we know companies that are stalling in the, in the plateau phase. And we all know companies that are in denial, but they're in, definitely in the death phase, right? And the best companies will take time to understand what those levers are while they're still growing, when they don't need to. Because, hey, all boats are floating on a rising tide and it's just call and you close deals as fast as you can. Why do you pause to figure out the mechanisms of growth? Because they're actually really hard. It takes a few years to figure out if you spend money here, does it actually you know, result in, in measurable ROI over here? And those things take time. So, so this was Jared, early, early instincts was he, he hired me and a small team to go figure this out. So I ran this thing called RevForce where I got into the metrics of the business. It was the first time that we had to like do the backwards math. To say how many sales reps do we need, and how many leads did each one of them need to be able to hit quota and our goals for next year, and how much do those leads cost, and how much should we sort of budget? I mean, that whole process didn't exist. It was just sort of like everybody keeps selling, right? It was just <laughs> kind of like that. And so um, that that was this beautiful opportunity to go and get my foot in the door. I became, turns out, the most hated person in the company. The first time that you have to like go and ask everybody for accountability metrics, you are not the favorite person at the dance. And so, uh, but what it did is I got exposure to all these pieces. And because I came from this background of like building financial models and understanding exactly what the lease up and triple net things needed to look like, this was kind of like, it made sense to me. And so that's where like that strong foundation is really played into building a growth engine for the company. Where we're responsible for sourcing, you know, between 25 and 35% of all company revenue.
0: It makes perfect sense. So it's no surprise that like your, your simple three slide or three, three bullet point, so to speak, presentation of what you're going to do to help marketing or do for the company as a leader of marketing makes sense that you would end up here. And you already have that foundation of how the business functions. How, how does sales get created? It seemed like a natural choice, even though it probably didn't at all at the moment where it was happening, but you already had the right foundation.
1: You know, it's one of those things where yeah. It turns out I'm really grateful that that foundation was there. I don't know that I would have ever constructed this path, you know, from scratch. In fact, I grew up with a father who constantly belittled like sales and marketing and a bunch of scammers out there and like always trying to bamboozle you into buying something you don't need, you know, kind of a thing. And so I actually had this early preconceived notion that marketing was not like a credible professional career path. (laughs) Like it was like marketing was what you did if you couldn't do something else. Like that's how I grew up. And so the fact that I had this foundation of like an acceptable business, I think it was the only reason I felt the confidence to go and do something that I found out I was really loving and enjoying. And I think that, you know, there was this moment where I realized I'd gotten through that sort of internal conflict based on the my family of origin and some of the storytelling that I'd heard growing up was um, when I finally realized that the job of any marketer is to influence other people to take action and do something. And in a lot of cases, that's to take action and buy a product or whatever. But, but all of a sudden I realized you know, with my sort of, with anything I desire to do in life, raising a family, raising money, funds for charity, one of the most important life skills I could ever develop was learning how to influence people to take action. And ideally, a positive action, something that would actually make the world a better place. And, you know, I think you've seen maybe through our fight for the fight efforts, et cetera, that's a really important, important part of the culture story. And so, you know, for me having that foundation and then getting through the, the kind of internal turmoil of being a marketer, right? Like being a marketer, I finally got to this place where I was just incredibly proud of the fact that I was dedicating myself to learning how to, you know, find a thing I believed in and then influence, find ways to influence people to take action. I just think it's a really noble thing for marketers to learn to do. Now, you could use it for the wrong reasons, but um, there's definitely some good that can come from it.
0: You've been on this journey. Qualtrics has been on a journey as well of creating a, a whole category from scratch of experience management. Why did you do that and how did you end up there?
1: Yeah, look, category creation. First of all, I should say it's absolutely been the most fun thing that I've done and probably maybe will always be the highlight of my career, even like definitely my time at Qualtrics, but it is not for the faint of heart. It's funny because it's really in vogue right now. Everyone talks about, like, oh, we got it. We're going to go do category creation, we're going to do category design. And to be honest, if you look at actually just the companies that are doing it or have done it, most of the time it doesn't result in the outcome they're looking for. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that's true. So for us, when I first joined Qualtrics, we were very, very clearly an academic research company. Like we provided research tools for academics that were so much better than anything else on the market that they would often pay out of their own pocket to get access to Qualtrics because the alternative was just horrible, right? Either an outsourced MR firm or like paper and pencil snail mail. Like you'd have to lift like a bajillion envelopes and just pray that someone fills that out and sends it back to you, right? So this is, it was so much better, but over time, You know, you could just see that the the Swiss army knife that the the engineering team had built was so much more capable than just collecting data that we saw customers doing different things for. In fact, by 2013, when I joined the company, we took a pretty deep look into the product that we saw is that even though we'd set out to be number one in the world on market research, that had actually slipped to the third most common use case. Number one was customer experience. Number two was employee experience. And number three was kind of product and brand, kind of like under the umbrella of MR. And so you could see that there was this journey that our product was going on, almost getting pulled by the market. And we were just trying really hard to sort of identify what that was and talk about it. So there was already this internal need to go and talk about something bigger that was happening versus a marketing exercise, right? This was not just like, hey, I don't like calling it contact management. Let's call it CRM. Or you know, there was like, you know, there was this bigger thing happening and there was a movement happening out in the market. I wish I could say like, oh, we we just trained the market on experience management. We went out there and we just made everybody snap too. The reality was this was a movement. This was a tsunami wave passing through town. And we happened to be in a pretty good boat that when we got on the wave, like we just blew past everybody because the movement was happening and we had the technology to go be at, you know, be out in front. And so when, when it comes to the category there was a lot of like escape velocity already building within Qualtrics and the market. And the difference I see with a lot of companies now is they're out there saying like, Oh, I don't really, you know, we're just trying to find a way to be differentiated than the competitors. Well, it's like, well, is there a market or not? Like, are you creating a new category or not? Because otherwise like it's because it's not for the faint of heart. Like you should probably just keep marketing the way you're marketing. Unless there's a really compelling reason that says something's shifting in the market. So for the, in the Qualtrics scenario, you know, it was interesting when we did category design, category creation, it's a lonely road. Like the way I describe it to people is like, you have to be willing to walk alone in the desert, right? You're going to be like parched and alone and there's dangerous stuff everywhere. And it feels like you're going to die. People abandon you. You can't like signal anybody. It's just horrible. And like, I'll give you a couple examples of of, like how to think about this. So our CEO, Ryan Smith, uh, who was absolutely a visionary CEO, like that is like, He's not necessarily an operator. Like he is a visionary CEO. And he just, he just like is always looking to how do we grow and build something iconic, important, and that, you know, makes the world a better place. Like that's always his jam. So he came at it from his side. He got introduced to the idea of category creation through, I think, one of our investors. And I got introduced to it through a podcast I was listening to called Stanford E Corner. So we both came ready to go dive in. We didn't have to convince each other. We're like, yes, we want to go do this. And, you know, when we did it, it wasn't that clear at the time so for example when we came up with experience management i had the head of sales a very important stakeholder to a marketing leader right head of sales come to me and say you are literally ruining our business like you're (laughs) i have a perfectly clear buyer with a very clear value prop i know how to price it like down to every single detail and like experience management like what are you like operating a, a river rafting tour guide agency or a, a <laughs> wedding planner? Like what is experience? I don't even know what that means. You know, so those are the kind of conversations you're having as you go out there and do this. And then like, you know, as evidence of how hard it gets, like I'll never forget we go, you know, cause we, we were in the survey business before this, like surveys were a really important part of what we did, but at the same time you can't go out there and try to convince the world that your surveys plus like, this is a new category. We're doing something different for our, for our customers. And so, when we launched the new website with XM experience management, how you manage and improve the four core experiences of all of your stakeholders, your customers, your employees, how do you make sh- phenomenal product experiences and the brand experience? So how do you do it? So as we go out and launch the website, my business is creating opportunities for sales reps, new leads to the sales floor. And the number one driver of that in paid media, guess what it was? The search term Surgery. surveys, right. survey software. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, this isn't going to work unless we dive all the way. in. so we went through over 600 pages across our website and just.
2: Ready to pop the question. The jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
1: Are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Removed every mention of the word survey anywhere. This, by the way, was terrifying. This was terrifying. This was like the majority of what I delivered to the company. This is how... I re- knew if I was going to like have a job next quarter. And so we do this and we know it means that we're going to miss next quarter. But we believed that the opportunity and what we were trying to go do was bigger and more important than any sort of near-term blip. So I'll never forget at one point, we, we go and we launch this thing, we put it out in the media and everybody responds negatively, right? Like the analysts are out there like, well, We don't know what that is. That it sounds like you guys made that up. You've got customers going like, wait, what? Do I need to switch vendors now? Cause you're not the thing I thought you like. It was just like a little bit of a mess out of the gates. And uh, I'll never forget our, you know, Ryan comes in. Everybody was feeling the pain and Ryan's like, roll back the website. roll it back." Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we, got, we had one of those moments where it's like, you're going to have to fire me. Like, we're not going to roll it back. Like, the, and, and we got to a place where like, you know what? This is the right thing to do. Let's go. And so that's why I say like, it's not for the faint of heart you have to be willing to wander alone in the desert for a time to go do this. And if it's not controversial, then you should probably just stay on the path you're already doing, because if you're not going to go change the game, then it's it's just too unforgiving to just do something that's mediocre.
0: It makes a lot of sense. And hindsight 2020 seems like it was a smart idea. I mean, you've you've moved to further integrate yourself into your customers' operations. Like you've expanded your use cases. I mean, like, you're hitting on all cylinders, it
1: seems like. It was the most important thing we did in the first 20 years of the business, like hands down. Like it was just, it's absolutely been a game changer for us. It's something that actually, first of all, not only was it incredibly fun, and I mean, very challenging, but so rewarding that I, I love category creation. I love category design. Uh, anybody listening to this that wants to learn more about it, you know, hit me up sometime.
0: What does marketing look like today? Like what does your org look like from your early days to now?
1: Well, you know, those early days, like we talked about everybody, I I just, everybody ran to one side of the boat. and was their title was demand gen, right? So we had like, we had like 18 demand gen people, like very flat, no titles, no leaders, just like demand gen. And that was like, you know, organizing events, running digital campaigns, um, running sales plays, et cetera. And the reality is it was exactly what we needed. I was maniacally focused on that and nothing else. And it absolutely was the right thing. I would, if I was going to go back and change anything, that probably wouldn't be what I changed. But I will sort of admit that there are other things that I didn't know at the time, but that were really important for marketing to own and be sort of incubating and developing. You know, things like, I don't know, pricing, <laughs> packaging, <laughs> positioning, like, how you, like where you show up on the analyst, you know, uh, charts and quadrants. And so, you know, there was a little bit of, there were some growing pains and we, I learned that I needed to go and get some really strong product marketers. And, you know, I had some of those instincts, but not all of them. And I brought somebody in that was just incredible and like did a bunch of reverse mentoring for me, right? Because I was fumbling my way through this, taught me a bunch of really important things. And we kind of expanded and grew that team. And anyway, today, basically what we've done is we've really indexed pretty heavily still on, on the growth team, right? Like this team, it's very clear what we do. In fact, one of the early things and, and um, kind of artifacts of this journey um, of those early days when everyone's on one side of the boat was we wanted to make it really, really clear to the entire company what we did, what marketing's job was. And, you know, in most companies, if you ask like, I don't know, a random engineer, like what does marketing do? Like they're going to like give a really not flattering answer, right? It's like, oh, aren't they the ones that do billboards or I don't know, do they do like company swag or something? Like that's typically what they go. They run ads, right? Commercials. And instead, we, we put together this thing. We ran, we, again, back to like the private equity days, running some models and understanding exactly how the business fundamentals work and, and really kind of a holistic view of, of the business outcomes the company needed. Just a simple analysis said, hey, if every sales rep at Qualtrics has four new opportunities every single week, like not leads, I'm talking like people that get on the phone, there's a real business, it's a real opportunity, they've run the medic playbook, like there's a real opportunity. If every sales rep, has four opportunities a week, we will never miss quota ever in the history of quality. We'll just just crush every quarter. And this is growing at 50% year over year. So, you know, doing that math, we sat down with the sales team and it's like, hey, how about this? What if you have your salespeople find two opportunities and we'll have marketing find two opportunities and then they'll always have four. So like your job is to find two, our job is to find two. Now at the time, we were delivering half of one opportunity per week to sales. So not very much. But what it did is we put this whole playbook together of getting to two. And it was so simple. Everybody knew it. Sales had two, marketing had two. You could ask an engineer today, eight years later, like, what is marketing? They're like, oh, they get leads to sales. They tee up opportunities of ready buyers for sales. And it's like, I love that clarity that exists within Qualtrics because we were so dang clear. Now, the cost to that was that it completely underrepresents all the hard work that lots of really good marketers at Qualtrics do. Like, we had to just accept that cost. One of the things that I see for marketers, and it's like the Achilles heel, is they try so hard to make sure that every single thing they do gets accounted for, that, they, that it's seen, that it's recognized, and that, that that event was really awesome, and that that marketing campaign was really clever, and, and the team that was doing the customer stories. like it just There's so much work that happens. They want recognition for all of it. And the reality is that's not what you need to report out to the team. Like So for example, even today, the only metric I report out to the rest of the company is marketing sourced closed ACV, not even pipeline. Now we have 50 metrics internally on the marketing team that we use to manage our business. But the only one I share with the rest of the company is did we hit our revenue goal? That's it, from marketing source, not marketing influenced, not marketing accelerated, marketing sourced, meaning it's very strict at Qualtrics by the way, we built this intentionally. Did the source come in through a marketing channel, meaning they filled out a contact form online, digitally, at an event, et cetera, but marketing. Their name never existed in the Qualtrics database on any database before. And it went to an opportunity where the sales rep had to put in a pipeline number against it within 30 days. If it took 31 days, not marketing. If they, you know, sales rep talked to them five years ago, not marketing. So when you think about that level of scrutiny, it just drives such clarity and accountability with marketing that now what that's done is if finance has... Um, any extra money at the end of the month, the very first door they knock on is marketing. Hey, can we give this to you? Can you place it? And that's a really great place to be as a marketer.
0: That is a great place to be as a marketer. And I love the clarity of the metric too. I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's to the point. It's what you would report to the board too, I'm sure.
1: It's amazing how many times I talk to marketers and they're just so desperate to share Metrics, you know, social media metrics, followers, um, top, of me- me- top of funnel metrics on like website visits, et cetera. Like, don't get me wrong. I look at all that stuff. We look at it fanatically, but that's not what we ever talk about with the rest of the company. It's, it's one ACV. That's it.
0: I want to switch gears a little bit because you mentioned this thing to me the last time we were talking about, and I want to spend a little time on it, but you, you mentioned talking about uh, setting up Q Studios which is, I realize a little bit of a pivot from what we've been talking about, but one, I'd love to hear you describe what it is and what you're trying to accomplish. And then let's talk about it a little bit, because I think it's pretty interesting what you're doing.
1: Yeah. You know, I like, I had this moment where I like woke up one day and was like disgusted by marketing in general, just like general marketing. I was just like this, I'm just so disgusted by this across the board. And it really came from sort of this just general boring sense of like, I think there was like some meeting happening where it was like, hey, we need to get some more white paper downloads available and some thought leadership out there. And I was just like, I can't do this the rest of my life. Like there's no way like another white, another pamphlet. Is that what we really like we've come to? It's just more. And it's just like, you know, yelling louder than the next company and waving your arms faster and standing on a sofa. It's just like I just like this. I know this isn't the future. I know it's not. And so, you know, it, was, it just sort of kicked off this general idea of like, okay, what is next for us? And how do we think about being really talented, like smart marketers? And so one of the things that was happening about the same time was, you know, within like six months or so, everybody had gone, to, most people had gone to remote work when pandemic was in full swing and something like very powerful was changing on the way that my team was engaging and I was managing. Now, a couple of like positive things. I was, I, turns out I'm a better manager. In this environment because i i'm forced to stay more connected with my team it's actually been really good but at the same time i'm a little more disconnected so i have a little more kylan time a little more me time right like if i have 10 minutes between a meeting i might skate with my kids in the garage for 10 minutes right like i've got a little more flexibility in how you know it back in the office i, I would have never had that opportunity what would i have done i would have either you know ran and got a drink or talked to a colleague or jumped on hbr and like you know tried to educate myself in the 10 minute window or something right So all of a sudden it is, I thought about all these folks, like you've got people sitting at their home or home office, or if they're in a hybrid environment, like so many of the buyers that we sell to are working in a hybrid format now. And the reality is without someone sitting over their shoulder, looking at exactly what they're doing, there's just a lot more flexibility on how they spend gaps in their day, right? A 15 minute window, a 30 minute, an hour long window, right? A meeting cancels, you have an hour, what do you do? And it was painfully clear to me that no longer were we competing with the HBRs or the white paper downloads of the world. We were not competing with business content. We were competing with even our own buyers. We were competing with entertainment. That's what they had in front of them. They could choose, like, if you have to, I mean, anymore, if I've got 10 minutes, I might choose to just check out the new Top Gun trailer. You know what I mean? If they have that like eight minute extended version now, it's like, yeah, let me turn the volume up and just chill out for two seconds because I've been going since 6am. And so in those moments, like the the burden is on us, is on the marketing team at a company to say, I'm competing with entertainment, not with business content anymore. And so if that's the case, I better produce content that is as entertaining and hopefully educational as anything else that they have in front of them. And so, yeah, we launched, um, we launched something called Quantic studios. So Q studios, and it's pretty phenomenal actually. So this is a team of people, very talented videographers and copywriters and directors and programmers, just a rad team that's out there building content that's intended to compete with entertainment that's sort of front and center for folks. So think like the Netflix for business, right? Like series that drop and get binge watched on Amazon. Like that's what we're out there producing because the end of the day, if you're still just trying to get ahead on a better white page, like white paper download, you are going to get lapped on the field.
0: You're creating um, a magnet to yourself. Versus having to go advertise in that next outlet that you just described, you know, the, uh, the Netflix for business, you're creating it. So you own it, which is kind of interesting.
1: Well, and it's just so much more fun. Like, I mean, talk about the stuff you want to get up and do every day. Like, I, I don't want to go write another blog post.
0: I know it's early days, but like, obviously, this is upper funnel activity for you. Uh, is that how you think about it? I guess I should clarify. Did, is, that, is that how you think about it? It's upper funnel versus lower funnel.
1: It is. Yeah, it's definitely upper funnel. And you know, when I think about a lot of the best campaign work that we've done, it's it's a little sometimes this is a place where I even struggled for a while, and I see marketers doing this sometimes, where it's just so hard not to want to build campaigns that are full funnel, right? Like you want a campaign that like from from seeing it the first time to like get through to revenue. And at the end of like I have to that's important to me because that's the only reason, that's the only way I'm measured. My team's success is measured on. The very last thing that happens, which is, does the deal close or not? Yet we have all these upstream activities like awareness, et cetera. And so we're always really tempted to build campaigns where it's seamless from, from I see it, I see it, to I click it, to I talk to somebody and I'm closing a deal. And the campaigns just don't always work that way. They just don't always, you can, some of them do, some of them are brilliant, but not always. And so this is very top of the funnel for us. It's about building trust with Qualtrics as being the go-to source of all things that have to do with experience. Like, let me just give you a, a silly example for a second. The other day, I have a, a colleague who is to celebrate some success they had in their career. They bought a nice new car. In fact, it was this beautiful Porsche. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a supercar guy, so I don't, I'm not into that. But I get into the car and, you know, because he throws me the keys, he's like, hey, take it for a drive. So um, I jump in and I, I go to start the car and the dashboard does this thing. You know, the thing I'm talking about is like the dance does like the, the dials move a little bit and like the things come on. Yeah. And, it, and honestly, it was breathtaking. I'm not even a car guy and it was breathtaking. It was, it, it was perfect. And I just, I just, for a second, I thought hats off to the product manager who, did that, who, who went through the process of figuring out what made sense. Because what I was used to was like getting in my Suburban, right? We got a big family, so we got Suburban. And you get in the Suburban, you turn the key on, and it's like chaos happens for the <laughs> right. first 10 seconds. It's so, like the
0: bing, bing, bong, bong. Yeah, like oh, all the lights yeah, like, come like, on. Like,
1: yeah, I've got engine warning lights coming on. Is that just to tell me that they're working? Or is that actually because I got a problem? Like, it's just chaos. And I'm like, that's a bad experience. And as you think about, like, life is full of these opportunities to celebrate these experiences that people have done good work and created a better experience with the product, with the brand, with the culture, with a customer service recovery. And like, that's the opportunity we have is to go out there and highlight and celebrate the best experiences in the world. And like I said, that's just way more fun.
0: Yeah. That's a lot more fun. I got a, cou- a couple more questions for you. And then I want to switch gears on you and talk about you a little bit more, but like not coming from a marketing background, you are killing it. Where do you source your learning? You're like, your experience, the like, how do you stay current?
1: This one's gonna, I'm gonna be a little like incriminating here. This is one of those ones where, did, did you ever see the movie Catch Me If You Can? You know I'm uh, yes. It was yeah, that, Leonardo that, uh, DiCaprio.
0: Leonardo, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, he's
1: like, he's like a con artist basically. I feel like a con artist most of the time. <laughs> I really do. So it's funny because um, after, if you watch that movie at the very end, after the credits, there's an interview with the actual person that was now like a criminal informant or worked with the FBI to kind of catch folks like this. And they do this interview and, and it's fascinating. At one point, he taught a like master's level psychology class at, some, at a college. And they asked him, they said, how, like, I, I, he's obviously very smart, but they said, how did you do that? How did you teach like a master's level, or maybe it was just a graduate level of some sort like program on psychology, right? You've never even taken a psychology class. And his answer was like really simple. His answer was, oh, I just read a chapter ahead of everyone else. (laughs) That was it. I just, I just read like, if today's Tuesday, we're doing chapter 21 on Thursday, I read chapter 21 today. That, that, that's literally how we did it for two years teaching this class. So I think about that all the time. And that's actually just been my story. I'm so behind the eight ball. I didn't get the training. I don't know the four P's, six P's, I don't know how many P's there are, like all that stuff that you get as a marketer. I I didn't get that. And so for me, it's been always about trying to read a chapter ahead. And so I do that in a couple of ways. So the first one is like, I'm a voracious consumer of podcasts. And um, there's a couple favorites, like ter- Terry O'Reilly, for anybody that doesn't follow him, like that is just really exceptional content. And it's some of the stuff that was never really intuitive to me, or, like some of the brand work and some of the awareness and upper funnel stuff, but it also dives into like product market fit and brand relevance. And there's just really good stuff in there. So like literally every single, and his content's hard to consume because it's like all over the place in different formats, but like every single you know, pieces ever put out. But then at the same time, like not just on the marketing front, I'm like a struggling people manager. Like I'm figuring this out. I'm not super great at managing large groups and teams. And, you know, we've got 200 marketers globally now. So it turns out that that's actually pretty important. And so like, you know, I think I've listened to every single Brene Brown podcast that she's put out. I've read all of her books. And again, for me, it's like, I just, I'm just trying to stay a chapter ahead. And over time, it turns out that you build a pretty deep library of ideas and concepts and some strengths. And so that's kind of on the learning front. And then the last thing, you know, for me that's really important is I'm always out there looking and observing like other people's campaign content. Like I'm, I'm, I know there's like this classic, like don't focus on the competition thing. Like that is not true for me. I look at the competitions work all the time and it's not because I'm trying to like keep up with the Joneses or rip off, you know, like ideas, but I just love campaign work. I just like that was really smart. Props to those. Guys. Okay, great. That was good work. And so, in fact, it's turned into one of my interview questions when I interview somebody. It's really important to me that I understand the campaigns that inspire them. It's actually surprising how many times someone will be interviewing for like a growth marketer role or a campaign manager or any of these roles inside of a marketing team. And at the end, I'll be like, hey, um, Tell me about a marketing campaign that really inspired you, like that set the high water mark that was so good. Maybe it was a competitor that you were jealous of, or maybe it was a company you were at, or maybe it was Apple. Like, just give me a campaign example. And when they struggle to come up with a campaign, I don't have to like the campaign, but like any campaign, like if they struggle to come up with a campaign off the cuff of one that they just have recently internally audited and thought about, and it can be a Super Bowl ad or a direct mail they got last week in their own mailbox. But if they can't do that, it's just, really strong signal to me that they're not a deep campaign person. I want someone that lives in that world. And when they drive around, they're looking at billboards. They're looking at the, less, the latest Ford F-150 ad. right? They're just, they're just curious what that looks like. And so for me, that's been just a tremendous source of learning.
0: Well, I want to switch gears a little bit. I got a couple personal questions, and then maybe end on two marketing questions in a little bit more rapid fire succession, if we can. Uh, this first one, though, you can take a little bit of time with uh, if you if you want. It's a deeper question, and I, I really enjoy asking <laughs> oh, it boy. of people.
1: Oh boy! It, yeah. So it, buckle up. <laughs> I mean, I'll go deep. You want me to go deep? I'll just go like super vulnerable. I'll go deeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious.
0: Exactly. Well, I'm I'm curious if there's been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today.
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of experiences that the school of hard knocks, like I learned from making the wrong choice, right, that I've kind of reflected on. I'll spare the listeners from that. But I think actually, this is one that this was actually pretty easy for me, because it's something I thought about a lot. And it's something actually that Andy Ratcliffe, who founder of Benchmark Capital, he was a professor at Stanford while I was there, just a really he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's incredibly arrogant. He knows that. He talks about it all the time, but he's so, he's so good, and he's been so good to me. He's just like a kind, generous person. And he talked about this one time after I was kind of struggling with understanding what it meant for me. Here's being a little bit vulnerable. I I came from a very tumultuous home where my dad was incredibly unpredictable. And, you know, it was like. The outcome of that was dealing with challenges in the workplace seemed very easy and minor compared to like, it's like, wait, dad's not in jail today. Like, okay, like, Hey, we can handle this. Like this, we didn't get as many leads as we needed to like, we can get through this, right? Like the problem seems so much smaller than, you know, having a father come home on drugs or in a, in a, in a state that, that just made you feel like you were crazy. Like there was just so much struggle in the house that it kind of forced me and my siblings to kind of just get really scrappy and to figure out how to deal, like just roll with the challenges. And I think it just reduced the anxiety of like, when a big problem comes now, like, I'm like, I've been through worse, so we can do this. And that's not like an active process. It just sort of sits down in the background. And so not that I would ever encourage anybody to design a tumultuous home for their kids as they raise them so they, you know, can roll with the punches. But I think actually um, one of the things that I'm trying to be thoughtful about is designing a situation where my kids can have deep, deep safety and a sense of belonging in our home, but also learn how to just be really scrappy when it comes to dealing with life challenges and things that are hard and kind of creating environments and moments where they have to dig deep and survive on their own just a little bit. And that's a complicated one, probably a different topic for a different podcast, but yeah, I think um, having to just sort of fight for it with my sisters and my brother like to survive, like there's just something, the chaos that we experienced growing up turned out to be really helpful for us. I mean, very challenging in our relationships as mature adults with each other and with our partners, but from, from the business side, there's definitely a, a few things that were positive that came out of that.
0: For sure. I mean, I've had other people on the podcast and not the exact same construct, but similar in terms of like having to dig deep at an early age, even my own experience at my, uh, it wasn't probably as tumultuous as yours, but had instability. Dad was bipolar, you know, so you, you never knew exactly who you were meeting (laughs) when you were there, you know? Right. But like in the chaos, um, I've had other people describe it this way to me and it makes sense with, I process chaos is there's actually clarity in chaos. I don't know. I, I get more focused when things around me are more chaotic, and in some cases, I can be more productive. I don't know if you feel that way, or if these are just my own reflections. But it feels like some days I can be more productive when it, everything is more ambiguous.
1: It turns out, you know, I'm glad you said that. I I do my best work in the most ambiguous situations, um, and they're not always the most fun, but they are the most rewarding. And it turns out that when I look back on the work, it's always better when I'm just deep in the chaos, right? Versus having sort of really clear guardrails. So there's, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. There's something there.
0: I know we're, we're, we're pushing at time. So I'm going to skip a couple questions if you don't mind. And I'm going to go, I think I'll just go straight to my last question, which is where do you th- see the largest opportunity or threat for marketers today?
1: You know, I think it ties back a little bit to that comment I made around where marketing is often born. It's born out of this sort of creative need. And then you find a bunch, you get, you end up with a bunch of marketers that are less connected to the business results that absolutely they're accountable for. And so it's like, you got some folks that are just feeling like they're in charge of the brand content and sort of, you know, gaining followers on social media and without taking the three or four clicks deeper to see where that exactly turns into revenue. And so, you know, one of the things I I think, I think the biggest opportunity for marketers is to think about the title of like CMO. And I've heard a few people talk about this, so I'm not making this up. Um, It's not new to me, is instead of the chief marketing officer, it's the chief market officer. Someone that's actually leading the charge to define the category, build something that attracts new customers and don't just find leads, but actually lead. I think if I look back and like try to think about what's actually helped me the most at Qualtrics, and maybe just my marketing journey has been to learning the craft of being able to tell a compelling story. And not just so that people don't drop off before the story's over. But when you do that, when you build the capacity to tell a compelling story of the way things should be, right? Not just something that happened last week, but like imagine a world where, boom, you drop this idea in the story. What that does is all of a sudden is the marketer as the chief market officer, you start making the market, you start defining product strategy. People start to build against the vision that you just set out. And it's, I'm learning it's incredibly rare, but I've, I've watched these marketers around me that I've kind of leaned into and found as mentors. And the ones that are really good at telling a compelling story of a vision of the future, they end up becoming incredibly powerful within the organizations and deeply trusted to go deliver business results. And not only that, but then all of a sudden engineering's building product against the vision that they just set forward and the story that they're telling out in the market. And you know, sometimes, at least in the Qualtrics case, it's gotten us a little bit in trouble, right? Because we'll get way over our skis when we talk about this idea. But then guess what? Product and end, they go and they build it. And um, I think that's the opportunity for the marketers in the world next is to really, really lean in and be more than just folks that find leads. But people that are leading on the vision, the story, the narrative, and then of course the ultimate destiny of the business and its success.
0: Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me, with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.